Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. It is the 2nd of June, 2022. It is World Pray for Prodigals Day. So let me encourage you to be praying by name and with intention for people who are living outside of a saving faith. I think that's important. I think it's imperative. I think we need to be praying for people who are at this point lost that they may be found. God knows where they are. God sees them. They're not unaccounted for. But they are currently um, living a life that is not heaven bound. And and that's certainly my heart, um, that more and more people would come to know the, the goodness of God's grace, his love in Jesus Christ poured out upon a cross, lifted up from a grave. Um, exalted, seated at the right hand of the father right now. And yes, coming again to judge the living and the dead. So, um, you know, there's going to be lots of conversations today, depending on where you live and where you're walking around and who you're talking with about the things of this world. But let us um, be sure that our attention is rightly focused on the things that are above, on Christ, who is seated at God's right hand. Let's let's be literally mindful of Christ today, um, that he would be the king reigning in the hearts and minds of of all people. That that literally has the potential to change everything. I mean, you want to change the world, um, change where people are focused, uh, get people's attention turned toward Jesus. So in terms of attention getting, there are uh, flags flying today that are designed to get your attention. I was uh, reading an, an article about something that happened yesterday in Madison, Wisconsin, where the Progress Pride flag now flies over the Capitol. And I was noting to myself, wow, um, that is quite a departure from the Stars and Stripes, which we all um, ran up the flagpole on Monday for Memorial Day, noting that Memorial Day is a day, a day. It gets a day. Um, apparently, pride in America now gets a month and not just pride, but progress. So you may see a flag that is not just rainbow colored, but also has an uh, an uh well, there's now several varieties, so I'll just lift it up that way. Um, people of pride, the flags we fly, the banners under which we walk. I want to focus on this for just a moment. As an American, um, I absolutely want to consider and raise concern about why the Stars and Stripes only got one day or only gets one day and why uh pride gets a, a month, but that's a different conversation. Right now, I want to draw our attention and our consideration as Christians um, to the whole concept of a flag and the banner flying over our lives. So in the Song of Solomon, there's this verse that talks about the banner over me is love. And as kids, we learn that song, you know, the banner over me is love, which I think it's important to consider what is a banner. 
in in the days of Solomon, it would have been a long or large strip of cloth that would have, you know, been a certain color bearing a slogan, a design, or had some writing of some kind on it, the banner over me. It's usually hung in a very public place. It's carried um, in a demonstrative way or in a procession. All of that should sound familiar. That is the modern day flag. So when it says the banner over me is love, what you know the understanding is is there the that this the flag over my life, the banner under which I live is love. It's the love of God. And so our entire journey from here all the way home to the Father's house is a um, is a march of love. The banner over me, the flag I fly, is love. Um, It is not lost on me in the middle of this conversation that the banner that God chose to set in the sky, the banner um, declaring his forgiveness over us, the banner um, that God chose to remind himself uh, never to wipe us out again with a flood um, was a rainbow. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't think you're allowed to steal God's stuff and reappropriate it or repurpose it for your own prideful ends. Again, that's another topic for another day. Um, Exodus 17 is a passage to focus on if you want to talk about the banner over us and what it means for God to be Jehovah Nissi, N-I-S-S-I, Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. So when we talk about flags and the flags flying over state capitals or the flags flying in people's yards or whatever, I want us to consider Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. All right. I mean, you know, I got a whole paragraph in here to, about the banner that we're living under. But my friend Peter Kapsner is waiting in the wings. So um, uh, let's just be raising the flag of Jesus. All right. Let's live under the banner of Christ in our own lives. And let's be waving the banner of Jesus before the world. Dr. Peter Kapsner joins us next. We'll be right back. Peter Kapsner is back. I mean, he's like back. He's not just back with us. He's back in the country. Hello, sir. Hey, Carmen. That was a great opener, by the way. I love that conversation about the banner and the flag and the rainbow and the co-opting of God's promises. It was just, I loved your opener. Well, thanks, man. So you and I were were going to talk about um, this way that President Biden and his wife communicate, but I have since learned that the Urban Dictionary uh, crude colloquialism that the Bidens use, apparently they don't know that the word that they use to describe the way they text one another is absolutely, it's like, it's obscene. Mm. And so I don't want to say the word on air because, you know, where, where I think they mean it's like fight texting. Other people would call it fake texting. Texting, but apparently that's not what it means 
um, in the common parlance of, let's say, contemporary slang. So let's just talk around the subject without using the word that the Bidens use to describe their marital communication. Let's yeah. talk about healthy marital communication. Is texting one another um, fighting words or any other kind of emotionally laden, unprocessed in conversation texting, um, is that healthy? Boy, it sure doesn't seem to be, does it? And yet it is entirely common in relationships. And and I would suspect it's far more common in relationships than we would let on. I'll I'll even confess to uh, a few times in our in my relationship with Hallie over 26, 27 years. And of course, it's only the last maybe 10 or so years that that texting has been relevant in the way that it has that, you know, we've texted back and forth a few times, but uh, in the middle of a heated conversation. But we both recognize still in, in the contrast of it that the best way to have um, some sort of ongoing argument, discussion, even if it gets a bit heated, is face to face. I mean, you know, Carmen, right? You, you can't see the verbal cues. You can't read tone. You can't make adjustments in the middle of a one-way text. You can't say, oh, I'm so sorry. It was misunderstood. There's just so many things you can't do than when you're when you're in real time conversation. But apparently uh, for for President Biden and his wife, Jill, they will text back and forth uh, some of their arguments. Now, the one piece of fairness, and I don't know what you think about this, but they, they didn't want to be fighting in front of the Secret Service was at least what Jill Biden was saying in terms of why they would sometimes argue back and forth this way. And I do know somebody who has worked within the inner circles of the White House and the president presidency since I think the Clinton White House and and people do talk about what goes on behind the scenes. And I think even presidents know that, too. So we've heard stories from every president uh, from Clinton moving forward from from people who have worked there in those kind of roles. So apparently they want to keep some privacy, as it were, uh, between them and texting. And I can see some of that. But but generally speaking, Texting is probably taking over from conversations for sure in my next generation that I teach all the time. I'm not sure they know how to have a, a healthy one-on-one -on -one conversation as, as readily as maybe previous generations would. All right. One of my most healthy conversation partners, Peter Kapsner, uh, is going to continue in conversation with us now. We're going to... Um, we're going to talk next about some uh, a story. It's so interesting. These strangers found out that they are sisters and they've been living in the same town for some period of time. Um, but there's more to this story in terms of the relationships that result because of generational sin. Um, and so we want to talk about that next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Um, how many times does the word begat appear in the Bible? That is my question to uh, smarty pants professor Peter <laughs> Kapsner right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> you could just say yeah. the answer is a lot. There's a lot of yeah. begetting and begatting in the Bible. Can you give me an over under? Can you give me like I don't know. Set, set the bar? I don't know the answer. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't I even know the answer. To the question. I was thinking like the whole book of numbers. For sure. Isn't the right? whole, I mean, the whole book of Numbers, right? It's just like, yeah, it, it appears, oh, here we go. Uh, the word begat in the Bible, uh, 139 verses about begatting or begetting. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All, all the way through. But you could think about That's the right. genealogies of Jesus in Matthew or Luke. You could think about the book of Numbers. I mean, there's lots of begatting and begetting. So I bring this up 
uh, because I'm reading this headline um, about these people who ultimately are related to one another, um, but found out uh, 48 years. Um, I got. I mean, this is so it's so confusing. It's not like they're sister sisters. They're like they're half sisters. Their dad. Um, you know, obviously had a relationship with each of their mothers um, and, and during a very, very similar period of time because these women are very, very close in age. So, you know, the, the article is all about this joyful reunions that are happening because Ancestry.com is helping people find their people. Um, but I was like alarmed at how nobody seems concerned about the fact that this man fathered all of these people with different moms Um I mean, is this the new modern family? What's going on? Yeah, boy, that was quite the story, wasn't it? Um, to see that the illicit affairs that the father had 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 come to light some, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years later, because these the, the children that had been begat, as you said, through these relationships, had begun to found, they, they began to find one another through Ancestry.com. And, you know, I guess in answer to your question, I would think that if they had the lived experience of it uh, and they knew these things as teenagers and in their early 20s, it may have had a much different kind of impact on their life when you're living in the heat of what is these illicit affairs that just cause such tragedy in relationships. And they really do. Um, Somehow, when they found each other some 30, 40, 50 years later, they um, they shared a different kind of bond. And, and sometimes we do bond over tragedy. They didn't have to live in the heat of that actual tragedy. But I think the piece of the puzzle, Carmen, that was really interesting is that family has been redefined again in some of our future and current generations by the people that you're living with and who you want to hang out with. There isn't the begatting that defines family anymore. It really is who who do you want to hang with and who do you love? I was just talking with my 20-year-old daughter about this last week. And those kind of relationships, roommates that you might share an affinity with or people that you work with or uh, when you haven't really had a proper family, you're still looking for some sort of family. But those families, they, they tend to break up and be very transient. I found compelling in this article was that they, uh, sh- because they shared a common father, even in the midst of tragic and sinful circumstances, that they shared a bond that was very, very different kind of bond than the alleged bonds of family that aren't actually family. They're just simply friendships that people are substituting as family in the midst of the breakdown of the family. So even in a tragic circumstance, I think it showed a hunger that people still really desire to be part uh, of a family that has a biological dimension to it. And I think we're really living in a vacuum of that that's causing a lot of of trouble for people. I just found that part fascinating is how much they bonded even in the midst of tragedy. Um, I think that's a, a really important observation. People long to have a relationship, um, with, I mean, we, we're relational. We're designed that way. Like, right, in the image of God, as image bearers of a God who lives in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally, um, we are relational beings. Uh, and we do have this primary relationship with a father, but there's lots of people living outside of an active relationship with with their father, with their dad. Um, can you make some, uh, can you draw some lines there? to this longing that we have to be in a restored relationship with the Father. And then obviously it, it, it seems like, you know, that's not only what Jesus came to reveal, but 
what the church is supposed to be, this family of faith. These are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of the Father in heaven. Yeah, for sure. I, I, parent, psychologists will often say that parents represent for children some of their first understanding of who God is, that God is mediated through the parents for the children and, and their understanding of that. And when, when we've pulled out one half of, of sort of the image-bearing Trinitarian God on earth, that being the father, out of the household in the way that it's been pulled out of the household these last few generations. Again, just had this conversation last week. We were with some young people, uh, as well as a dad who had experienced some tragedy losing their son uh, to suicide about a year ago now. And the rippling impact of that is that the dad um, was really struggling and the young and, and the young man was really struggling. And there was an absent um, part of this where the young man didn't know how to move forward because his dad wasn't necessarily there anymore. And I'll tell you what, Carmen, the epidemic of fatherlessness in terms of young men not knowing how to be young men, I think mm. we can draw probably 15 lines in 15 different directions from that, including what happens um, in, in, in families today where young men don't really know how to be husbands. I, I think we see a lot of gender blurring resulting from um, this generational fatherlessness that we've had. We could probably comment on, on, again, 13 other lines being drawn from it. But Hallie and I talked about it, my, my, uh, and, and we said, there just isn't an initiation into manhood anymore. And I talked to so many young women who really would like to find a stable, um, healthy, relational, um, strong, uh, uh, compassionate male that has a maturity about them at the age of 21, 22, 23, 24. And they're really struggling to find what I just described. I was talking with my theology friend um, yesterday over, over lunch, too. Same thing. We notice it in our own boys that who's raising them. And we're so we're glad to be fathers in the home uh, for them. But they still don't have a ton of role models out there anymore related to fathers. And it's it's really tricky. And I think we've underestimated the impact of it. Mary says the scripture that comes to mind here is that God places the lonely in families, Psalm 68, 6, and Lori uh, texted, and I see this all the time in my line of work, and it's tragic, our boys and our young men are not okay, and mm-hmm. they don't know how to be good men. Um, yeah, let's, um, let's, let's think about circling back around to this topic in the future. Um, lots of people on the text line pointing out that this seems like uh, it's bearing itself out in very, very tragic ways in, um, in, in violent scenarios across the country to which I don't think I have to point directly. Yeah. Um, Hey, as always, thank you so very much. Um, uh, we love you. We're glad to hear from you. I can't imagine that you're here in the States instead of celebrating with the queen, um, in her, Platinum Jubilee, because I thought for sure that's where you'd be. But I I am crediting you with being the person who set up the Lego version of the whole thing. Is that how you spent (laughs) recently 280 hours setting up the Lego version of the Platinum Jubilee? Is that what you've been doing? We did. did. We we actually just last week walked past Buckingham Palace. We saw all of the platforms being built, all the stands and the grandstands. And I took some mental notes, Carmen, and I crushed it with the Legos this last week. It was brilliant. (laughs) That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. Have a great day, man. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. What's the water you're swimming in today, and when's the last time you thought about the water? 
or what's the air you're breathing today and when's the last time you thought about the air? We're talking about the atmosphere. We're talking about the environment. Uh, And we know when you walk outside and the air is like stifling, you feel like you're in a sauna, um, you know, like, you know, a days when the air quality is bad, maybe there is a a fire and you know that that fire is actually miles and miles away, but you can still smell, uh, smell, smell. There's a new word for you. You can still smell the smoke and maybe even feel little bits of ash from time to time. The quality of the air we breathe or the water we're swimming in, the cultural water we're swimming in, we often, often see or feel or point to the contaminants. Like, right, those things that make it less than what it is supposed to be. But we want to um, spend some time talking with Glenn um, Shivner today about the positive realities in the air that we breathe in Western society. Um, because we want to help other people see the value of the air we breathe as Christians and just how many Uh, Christian-influenced realities are a part of our everyday life. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The Air. Joining us now, Glenn Scrivener. Among other things, he's the author of a brand new book, The Air We Breathe. Here's the subtitle, and it's long. How we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. Discover the Christian roots of the values we prize in Western society. Glenn, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that's a lot of words on the front cover of a book. <laughs> you know, back in the old, in the olden days, the, the Puritans <laughs> used to have incredibly long uh, kind of subtitles, almost longer than the first chapter. So, you know, you know what you're getting into when you read the subtitle. No, absolutely. Um, I I love it. All right. Talk with me about the reality of the goldfish and how I am like a fish today who fails to see the water I'm swimming in. Well, that's that's the truth of all of us. And whether you've ever set foot inside a church or whether you've ever seen a Bible in your entire life, you are a goldfish. And the water that we swim in is Christianity. Uh, We've we live within a Christianized world. And one of the ways we see how Christianized this world is, is that nobody seems to notice. Everybody seems to think that the values that they hold are just obvious and natural and universal. And they are none of those things. They, they trace their way all back, all the way back to Jesus and his revolution. Okay, so let's talk about that. It does talk about that, because I think there's probably a lot of folks listening right now, including myself, who we, we tend to think that Um, Western Europe and the United States of America are exceedingly unchristian, non-Christian, anti-Christian. You're here to help us sort of reclaim the reality that although there are ways in which we culturally depart from the things of Christianity, underneath it all, underlying it all, uh, aren't just the roots, but the fruits of uh, Christianity in Western society. 
Yeah, and you use that that phrase roots and fruits. I think many people have noticed how modern Western society is a kind of a cut flowers society. Mm. Um, and cut flowers are wonderful. They look they look great. They smell great. Um, they haven't got long, and they are, they are perishing. And so I'm I'm not saying that uh, everything is roses in uh, in modern Western society, but I am saying that uh, the fruits of the Jesus revolution are what everybody sort of takes for granted. And so I, I go through seven different values in the book that we all think are just natural and obvious and universal and, and show how they come from Christianity. So I've got equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. All of these things we sort of take for granted as just um, just kind of obvious intuitions and, and morals that we might hold in the world. Uh, but all of them actually come specifically through Jesus. All right. We're talking with Glenn Scrivener. And now that you know a little bit about the book, you probably want a copy of The Air We Breathe. We do have a handful of copies to give away today. So if you're interested in how We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. The list is actually longer than that. Um, and you want to discover or rediscover the Christian roots of the values we prize in Western society. You want to text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Um, before we start jumping into some of these uh, specific values, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress— um, I, I would love for you to just spend a little time talking about breathing. And mm. because I think that when we think about, oh, let's focus on our breath and let's focus on our breathing, we imagine that somebody is trying to lure us into some crazy Eastern spiritual practice that's not <laughs> Christian. Uh, that's not yeah. what you're trying to do. No, I grew up in Australia and uh, I now live in the UK, but uh, I never noticed when I grew up how sweet the atmosphere in Australia smells because we've got so many eucalyptus trees, these gum trees, and it's basically like uh, breathing in a cold remedy the whole time. Uh, mm. It's sort of carried upon the breeze. It's incredibly sweet. I never noticed it until now when I fly back into Sydney, it hits me. It's the first thing that hits me, the warm, sweet air. And I guess my my plea with the book is to think that actually the moral intuitions that we all have are a bit like that that they, uh, they go unnoticed, they're invisible most of the time, but we live by them. And sometimes it takes us to be taken out of our atmosphere in order to appreciate what we had taken for granted. And so, for instance, in the, in the book, I go back to sort of pre-Christian cultures and talk about the Greeks and the Romans. And they really, they saw the world very, very differently. And uh, the world smelt differently to a Roman. And sometimes we, we never really understand how pervasive the Christian revolution is uh, until we look at non-Christian or pre-Christian societies. But what we have to do, I guess, as Westerners is to focus on our breathing and to, to figure out uh, what is it that we take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis? And I think we all take for granted that there is an equal moral status to every single member of the human family with nobody left out. I think we all tend to, to believe that, whether you've ever set foot inside a church or not. We all tend to think that societies uh, are best that uh, take care of the weakest members. 
and and we we tend to take for granted that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others we take for granted the power of education the power of science we take for granted that people are not property that each of us should control our own lives we tend to take for granted that you know the arc of history is long that it bends towards justice we take these things for granted all the time they are the air we breathe and that's the sense in which i want us to continually uh stop pause understand the world around us and and the 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 very uh, specific moral intuitions that we inhabit and when we do that i think we'll see that we are all of us living by a certain kind of faith so glenn let's um let's examine one of these one of these things that we take for granted that's a part of the air that we breathe uh, and so we don't we don't even know the assumptions we're making. We don't even know the foundation we're walking on when we're talking or when we are seeking to build, um, you know, institutions or or new practices on top of um, on top of those existing foundations. Can you just take one and help us see what we're not seeing? I think let's take compassion for instance. Great. Uh, I think we we tend to think that a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. Um, and yet you ask yourself the question, why should we think that? Because if we are purely uh, a kind of a product of evolution, if we are purely a product of natural selection, then I guess it's, it's kind of survival of the fittest and therefore the sacrifice of the weakest. And yet – we don't take that for granted. We, we don't think that that is a moral way to live. In fact, we tend to think that the strongest should, to some degree, sacrifice themselves for the weakest so that the weakest might be protected. And not, not only do we think that that is an option for homo sapiens, we, we tend to think that that is virtuous. And yet in pre-Christian societies, that is not at all obvious. Um, that kind of kindness, that kind of compassion uh, was not obvious to these cultures that were built on dominance and built on getting to the top of the, of, of the hierarchy. So what happened, I, I guess the thing that happened is that Christ, the fittest, came to be sacrificed for us, the weakest, so that we, the weakest, might survive. It's, it's really the, the upending of nature. It's the upending of survival of the fittest. And so Jesus kind of through his death and resurrection and he sends the spirit on the church. And now he has birthed a movement by the spirit that takes it for granted that obviously the thing we should do is to be a good Samaritan. And if you see somebody by the side of the road, then of course you're not going to pass on by on the other side of the road. Of course you're going to look after the least and the last and the lost. Now, that is not at all an obvious morality to a Plato or an Aristotle or, or the classical world. And it was not an obvious morality to somebody like a, a Nietzsche, um, the, the German philosopher of the 19th century. Um, the, the, these people thought um, that actually the, the best thing you could do for humanity would be to let the weak die, let, let, you know, let, let, let those um, who would hold us back perish so that the strong can survive and, and, uh, and continue on. So where do we get the idea that compassion is actually the virtu virtuous thing to do? It really does uniquely come from Jesus. So, um, Glenn, you've brought to mind so many things. Like when you, when you talk about that which is so obvious to us, it's not obvious to everyone. It's also not obvious to everyone in the world today. We make assumptions as Westerners that everybody sees, sees things 
the way we see things. Everybody is actually swimming in the same water globally. It is a small world after all. Mother Teresa is a really good example of a person who absolutely radically demonstrated that there are places in the world and because of their worldview, people are not seen in the same way as they are by, you know, by those of us raised in Western waters or ways raised in Western air. And so I think that's one of the, um, you know, one of the people who, who comes to mind when you talk about this, like it was so obvious to her that those children who were being left to die in the streets of, in the gutters of Calcutta were people, image bearers of the living God that had never occurred, never occurred, would never occur um, to a person raised in, um, in a Hindu mindset. So, um, so I think that there are practical implications to all of this, and I would say that the ethics now being taught by um, by people who think in a very naturalistic and Darwinian way, um, ethics being taught at some of our um, most significant institutions of higher learning here in the United States of America, uh, they result in the same thing. In the same, children should be left to die in the gutter if they, you know, if they don't demonstrate. Um, you know, a, a particular level of, of intellectual aptitude or um, or I could see the value of them further down the road. So this utilitarian way of thinking about things is not Christian. Um, and there's a reason that I rebuff it when I hear it. And yet it is now what is being taught um, in many, many places. All right. We have to take a very brief break. We're going to continue our conversation with Glenn Scrivener. The book is The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress and Equality. Discover the Christian roots of the values we prize in Western society. If you're interested in a copy, text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Reading from... Uh, the introduction of the air we breathe by Glenn Scrivener, who is joining us now. Listen to these uh, qualities and consider them for a moment: equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress. Glenn says none of these values are self-evident, nor are they widespread among the civilizations of the world. So, where did they come from, and how did they get to become? The air we breathe, or if you're thinking of a fish, the water we swim in. We could answer that question in one word, in two sentences, or in 10 chapters. The one word is Christianity. And if and I'll pause here outside of what Glenn has said expressly here in this introduction and say, when we talk about Christianity being a totalizing system, that's what we're talking about. And that is what he's talking about as well right here. The air we breathe, the water we swim in, Christianity as a totalizing system system. But here's the two-sentence answer. It goes something like this. The extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that we don't notice it. You already hold particularly Christianish views, and the fact that you think of these values as natural, obvious, or universal shows how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. Um, Glenn, um, again, thank you for joining us today. You go on to unpack this in 10 chapters because it's not as obvious to everyone um, anymore or in the current reality of a culture where at least 25 percent of the population publicly confesses to having no faith. And yet they still hold many of these basic underlying values. 
Yes. Yes. And I, th I think I wrote this um, in particular. I had one. I had two people in mind uh, as I wrote this book. One of them is my father-in-law, who is uh, from a, a, a conservative culture in Northern Ireland that's very church going. But he himself hasn't gone to church for about 50 years. Um, and and I got him uh, a couple of Christmases ago. I got him a, a book uh, called Dominion by Tom Holland, who's a, a historian and wrote a, just a, a really compelling, um, very long book that sort of takes the same argument that, that I take, that uh, we've all come from, from Christianity, really. And Tom Holland is not a Christian, and he wrote this book, and Tom Holland has come very, very close to the kingdom in, in writing this book. And I was just um, really wanting my father-in-law to, to read um, that longer book, Dominion, and uh, it still sits on his shelf. So I thought, right, I need to write a book from a Christian perspective, and I need to I need to write it shorter, and uh, we need to pray that my father-in-law uh, will read will read this book. And th and then the other person that I wrote it for is a friend who wrote me a letter, and, and she said, I, of course you realize I could never be a person of faith. And the way she said that, it it just it for her. Faith is something that other people have, and she has dodged the bullet, or or she has missed out on the lottery ticket. Which whichever way you 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 might want to see whether whether faith is a good thing or a bad thing, it's not her thing. And I just I just have such a burden to show my friends um, that, especially th this friend of mine, she lives by all sorts of humanistic values that actually mean that she gave up her job at one point and went and served in uh, in hospitals in Africa and and she she is a person who lives by certain faith values and none of those faith values make sense actually on the world view that she says she believes in she says she believes that she is simply the the product of of evolution and yet she does not live as though survival of the fittest is the highest value in her life and so it's just my it's my huge burden especially in a very post-christian united kingdom um setting where very few people um, consider themselves Christian, uh, it's it's my burden to show them that nevertheless they believe and they are people of faith. Now, does that mean they're Christians? No, it actually means they they are inhabiting a kingdom in the air that has no foundations, and they really need some ground beneath their feet. Only Jesus will do. But actually, I think it really helps my friends if they can see themselves, ah, you know what? I'm already a person of faith. Therefore, it's not the most nuts thing in the world to believe in this Jesus stuff. So I feel like um, the nuns are an audience here. Um, the duns are an audience here. And then in the final word um, at the end uh, of the book, you talk about the ones. Can you just maybe walk around with us in some of that language because it's very refreshing so uh the nuns are not the n-u-n-s's those in a habit uh who are in holy orders it's the n-o-n-e-s-s's it's it's those who on a survey when they're asked what is your religious affiliation they say i have none and so they they have gone down as the nuns and and so people are, are talking demographically about the rise of the nuns and and to them, I I want to say, uh, if you think that you are not a person of faith, really think again. Really consider the air that you breathe, um, and consider that if we live in a cut flower society, uh, we cannot we cannot live for very long uh, without getting reconnected to our roots. So that's that's kind of my burden when I speak to the the nuns, and then to the duns. That that is those who are just done with Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, 
may, maybe church was part of their history and uh, something happened. Maybe uh, there's abuse. Maybe there's deconstruction happening in their lives. Um, maybe it's just, you know, 13 years of, you know, Christian education at a, at a church school and uh, they feel like they've graduated from it. And again, my, my word to them is, you know, Christianity is not the sort of thing that you can point back to over there back then. It is far more like the air we breathe. And my word to them really is all the problems you have with Christianity are Christian problems. Um, and, you know, it's just fascinating to think that the worst thing in the world to call anything is if anything is not equal, if it is not compassionate, if, if there is no consent, if, if it is unenlightened, if it is anti-science, if it is anti-freedom, if it is anti-progress, we think of those things as the worst things in the world. And so many people think of the church in exactly those terms. And my big plea to them is by what standard, by what standard are you making those judgments? You are using Christianity even as you critique Christianity. So that's my word to the duns. And then to the ones, that's Christians. That's those who are won by the good news of Jesus, W-O-N. We are won by the good news of Jesus. And to, to them, I just want to say, isn't it exciting that Jesus in Matthew 13, he said that you know his movement would work like yeast through a batch of dough. Or he said his movement would be like a, a mustard seed that grows to become the largest tree in the garden with branches so great that the birds are perching in its branches. And I love that image in Matthew 13 because the last time we saw birds in Matthew 13 was way back at the start of the chapter and the birds were pecking at the seed. They were these satanic opponents to the word of the kingdom and they were they were opposing Christ's kingdom. And by the end of Matthew 13, the, the kingdom has grown to the point where these birds now depend upon the kingdom and are enfolded within the kingdom. And isn't it amazing that Jesus makes this prediction 2,000 years ago? He's just a couple of years away from a God-forsaken execution. He had no earthly power. He was surrounded by no-hopers. And it turns out that he pulled off the, the most extraordinary revolution in history. And somehow he's gone from God-forsaken execution to world domination. And you just mm -hmm. think that's the, that's the greatest miracle ever. I mean, water into wine is pretty good, but to go from <laughs> God-forsaken execution to world domination, and we're living within that miracle. And, and just to give Christians a real confidence that the, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the, the church and that we are living within this extraordinary movement. I love it. Um, Glenn, thank you for the invitation and the uh, encouragement to be properly weird. <laughs> Just going to leave yes. it at that. If you um, <laughs> if you feel improperly weird and you want to know how to be properly weird, that is in part what you're going to learn by reading The Air We Breathe. If you're interested in entering the drawing we have for the copies to give away today, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. You can find uh, Glenn Scrivener at speaklife.org.uk. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.